Last year, Adam Hooper had an idea for a real bonding experience with his kids and some other families. They'd all spend the day together at a water park in southwest Australia. It was a lovely day. We drove out there, went to the shops before and bought a whole pack of meat and buns and, and sauce and all that sort of stuff. Adam got there early with his two kids, and it wasn't long before more parents and children started streaming in. They were rocking up, sending messages, hey, we're here. Adam says the day was a blast. He led a small army of kids through hedge mazes. They ate barbecue, played tag, and splashed around in the water. We all had a barbecue and chat, and it was, you know, it was a good time. Adam said that day in the park, he could really see everyone connecting. It's funny because you see these children click and they know they, they, they're very young, but they just bond with each other more than like a, you see like a normal friend would. Adam says there were about a half dozen kids there in all. Two of them were his own, and the rest were his donor children. Adam says he doesn't keep count of how many donor offspring he has, but... Ballpark figure, I've probably helped over 15 families now. This scene, donor children, multiple moms, the sperm donor, all hanging out together in the open, may seem curious given everything we know about how fraught these kinds of relationships can be. But Adam isn't a typical donor. Adam is a pioneer in the world of online private sperm donation. As in groups, mostly on Facebook, where people exchange the goods peer-to-peer for free. And communities like these have changed Adam's life. I mean, look, to be honest, I was a bit of a traditionalist. I always thought, you know, um, having a mother and father was the way. And, and then I had my own marriage breakdown. Adam joined a small online group of sperm donors back in 2015. Just a couple of dozen people were on there at the time. He saw bad actors, guys that were joining and pressuring women into sex, as opposed to artificial insemination. He says he wanted to make the online community safe, so he started screening donors and recipients who joined. We take things seriously because we think what you write in your post is your boundaries and they need to be respected. And if people aren't respecting your boundaries, well, I'm sorry, I don't want you in in, in the community. Today, he runs several Facebook sperm donation groups, including Sperm Donation Australia, Sperm Donation USA, and Sperm Donation World. And this model of online sperm donation... is spread like wildfire. Dozens of Facebook groups connecting donors and recipients exist today. The largest of those groups have tens of thousands of members. Adam estimates, very roughly, because there's no way to be sure, that these online communities have produced several thousand children the world over. I like that I've been a part of something that's helped reshape society. From Sony Music Entertainment, and three Uncanny Four productions. This is Biohacked Family Secrets. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. Today, a look at the people forging a new path outside the fertility industry. 
the women and couples seeking out sperm online, and the donors stepping up to the plate. He texted and he was like, hey, you guys want to meet up sometime? It was like, all right, you're really doing this. I mean, I was terrified. We would strongly advise people not to use Facebook sperm, Amazon sperm. It's definitely not in their best interest. Forget new laws. What does new tech mean for the baby business? That's next. Stick around. Growing up, Tyree Kelly didn't know his dad. It wasn't a part of his life he thought about much. Until he was a teenager and the truth came out. I found out when I was 13 who was my biological father and also how many siblings I have. He learned he has a lot of half-brothers and sisters. About two dozen of them. But Tyree's dad wasn't a sperm donor. He was just a rolling stone going around, just dropping them, just like left and right. Had kids up and down the block. After like uh, the Vietnam War, he probably populated Virginia. This information was a lot to process, but it didn't weigh Tyree down. As a grown-up, he wanted to be different from his dad, a man who was absent. And he wanted to help people. If I see somebody that's on a corner that has a sign saying they're hungry and stuff like that, I would go get them something to eat. A few years ago, he saw a documentary that gave him an idea. The movie was about sperm donation. He realized this is one more way to help those in need. To him, the idea didn't feel all that different from donating blood or plasma. He started doing his homework. And one of the first things he noticed was that cryobanks... They were charging women ridiculous amount of money for sperm. I'm like, like, let's say if I went to the sperm bank and donated sperm, they would take my one sample and split that sample several times and sell that for thousands and thousands of dollars to these women. I feel as though that's unfair. You got people making bank off of people hoping to start a family. So he decided to offer his services elsewhere, on Facebook sperm donation groups. I've always been really family-oriented. Even when I was young, I was always playing or carrying a baby around, so I've always wanted children since a young age. For Ajami Grays, this urge really kicked in about a year into her marriage. She and her wife were ready to start a family, but when they started exploring options they hit a major roadblock. It just started adding up. She saw a lot of possibilities out there, but they were all really expensive. There was surrogacy, IUI, which is where a doctor implants frozen sperm directly into the uterus, and of course, IVF. Close to about $18,000. And if Ajami and her wife decided to go this route, they'd need sperm. For one sample, I would say the lowest I've ever seen was about $800, and that's just for one try. Like you heard in our last episode, LGBTQ couples like Ajami and her wife are often forced to pay even higher costs because insurance won't pay for their fertility treatments. So they sought out some 
alternatives. I randomly got on Facebook and typed in sperm donors, USA. A whole world revealed itself. Dozens of pages with tens of thousands of members, including the one Adam oversees from Australia. Ajami joined, and then she watched. I saw people posting like, hey, I am in West Virginia. I'm looking for a donor that is African-American with brown eyes. And then from there, you would see like the comments of people saying like, oh, I'm in this location, but I could travel to you. So that kind of just became kind of like a puzzle pieces that started, you know, clicking everywhere. Other parts of the groups functioned almost like a support community. There were people going through this same strange search together, figuring it out and sharing their stories. There were questions about ovulation cycles, self-insemination, and creepy donors. Photos of pregnancy tests, endless acronyms and jargon. Things like baby dust. Which is basically kind of like pixie dust, but with babies. (laughs) So wishing that everyone gets the babies that they want. And there are three acronyms every person on the site fills out when they join, related to the insemination methods they're comfortable with. AI, NI, or PI. AI is artificial insemination. The donor does his business in a cup or some other receptacle, and the recipient inseminates herself. And then you have PI. Which is partial insemination. So essentially that is where your donor basically, pardon my language, but gets himself off, then inserts himself into you, releases and that's partial insemination. And finally, there's NI, natural insemination. Which is just basically sex intercourse. After a few months or so observing the groups in action, Ajami and her wife took the plunge. They posted that they were looking for a donor, someone close by, though they were willing to travel a few hours away. And their post included an important note. Specifically said we're looking for AI, so artificial insemination with a known donor. Nationality did not matter to us. And serious inquiries only. Pretty quickly, she started getting messages. She says the response was... Interesting, to say the least. When you're in the sperm donor world, not everyone is in it for the right reasons, and you have to weed through that. There are no formal rules that govern these sites. No outside sperm testing or vetting of a donor's health or motivations. The pages are run by moderators, people like Adam Hooper, who genuinely want to make them safer. Like a lot of community groups, they self-police. Community members post warnings about some donors. Bad actors sometimes get kicked out or never let in in the first place. But some also slip through the cracks. So I had some people that would say, oh, hey, I'll travel to you, I'll fly to you. And then upon speaking to them a little more, they wanted to come to have sex, which again, my post said the complete opposite. As Ajami started messaging donors, she saw fake accounts. People she suspected were trying to con her out of money. And also genuine creeps. 
It's just looking out for things that don't seem right. If it doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. Some folks who she thought seemed promising just ghosted her, never to be heard from again. When Ajami found a donor that seemed like a good fit, it wasn't on the Facebook pages at all. It was on another means of finding private donors. An app called Just a Baby, which functions basically like Tinder. Prospective parents can swipe left or right on a potential donor's profile until they get a match. The donor Ajami matched with on the app was healthy, in it for the right reasons, and he had a track record. His sperm had created offspring with other recipients. On paper, he sounded ideal. It also turned out he was actually a member on a bunch of the Facebook pages, too. He and Ajami had just missed each other online. So he texted and he was like, hey, you guys want to meet up sometime? He was like, you and your wife, we can meet somewhere public, somewhere comfortable. And, you know, we can just sit and talk and get to know each other more. Around the same time, Tyree was navigating his own messages. He was advertising himself on these sites, trying to sell himself over other donors. I'm 31 at 510. I love computers and technology. I graduated within the top 25% of my high school. This is part of a post that Tyree shares on all the sites he joins. I should probably go ahead and make this clear. Tyree is not Ajmi's donor. But it's possible she saw one of his posts, like this one. He read it out loud for us. I'm a donor. I live in Mesa, Arizona, willing to travel as long as travel expenses are covered. He talks about playing sports in high school, his own kids, sort of a proof of concept. I have four daughters, so you can see what the child can come out looking like. Tyree says joining the groups and posting about himself, that was the easy part. And uh, so when you start communicating with people, setting up times and meeting up with people, that's when it starts really getting scary. Tyree was kind of timid in those early conversations. Sure, he could see the person's profile, but who were they really? The simple fact is that you got to learn to trust people and trust the system and that hopefully you vetted that person properly. Over time, Tyree learned how to navigate in these groups and he grew more comfortable. So when I first started, I was like a house cat. I want to go outside. I want to go outside, but I'm scared to. <laughs> and when I finally jumped into it and went out and started helping people, I was an outside cat then. Tyree and Najmi become outside cats. That's after the break. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. 
With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. After chatting online and over the phone, Ajami and her wife decided to meet their donor in person. They got together at a Starbucks, and they hit it off. I was like, you know, whatever happens, happens. We have someone. He's close. He's handsome. He's sweet. <laughs> like, he respects us. Like, we have literally the perfect match. This face-to-face meeting put Ajami and her wife at ease. And for me, this moment really shows what's drawing a lot of people to Facebook groups and apps. It's not just about money. It's about intimacy and agency in making your family. You know, personally, this donor, unlike if you go through like a cryobank, you know what kind of characteristics they have. You've talked to them, you have their contact, you've met with them. Ajami and her donor ironed out the details of the donation in a contract. It said the child would belong completely to Ajami and her wife. Side note, these contracts are pretty common in online donations and come up in a lot of posts, but they're also legally ambiguous. There are a few risks. Down the road, the donor could say the child is theirs, or a judge could rule the donor owes child support. So some donors and recipients prefer not to leave a paper trail. But Ajami and her wife decided this was the best course for them. So they moved forward and signed a contract with the donor. Since Ajami was going to carry their child, she started tracking her ovulation. When she hit her peak, her donor was in town. He told me to come to this location, which was um, actually his daughter's house. His daughter wasn't home. It was just Ajami, her wife, and their donor. He did his business, and then passed off the goods in a cup to Ajami, who went into the bathroom to inseminate. I came out, and what was going through my mind is like, I don't want to make this awkward, so like, I don't want to just leave. So I just kind of sat down on the couch with him and my wife, and we just watched Home Improvement for like 30 minutes together, like looking at the different houses. And then after that, we were like, all right, well, I guess we'll see you tomorrow. They met up three more times over the next few days. Ajami's donor works in real estate, and he was at a job site with a colleague during their next appointment. 
He wanted to keep things under wraps. So he brought the cup out to Ajmi and her wife, who were waiting in a car. So I took it through the window. I had brought a pillow. I brought a blanket. With her wife sitting at the wheel, Ajmi laid down in the back seat and tried to make a baby. It all went fairly smoothly, at least as far as trying to get pregnant in a car with a stranger's sperm goes. Then came the fourth attempt. Same setup in the car, but this time Ajami's wife had to work, so Ajami had to go it alone. I pulled into a, a parking lot of like um, like a EMT, like fire and rescue EMT, like parking lot, which was like completely dark, and I inseminated in the back seat of my car, and I just kind of laid back there for about 30, 45 minutes with my hips elevated in the back seat of my car. And I was like, all right, well, I think that's about enough time of me being in this parking lot. So then I just got back to the front seat and drove home. Then all Ajami could do was wait. It was like, all right, you're really doing this. <laughs> it's like you're really coming into reality of what's happening. I mean, I was terrified. Tyree remembers being really skittish the very first time he met up with a recipient. He had never done anything like this before, so he kept it to himself, mostly. I had told a friend of mine, that's it. He was my neighbor. I told him where I was meeting her at. I told him everything. I'm like, listen, if you don't hear from me in 15 minutes, just send the police. <laughs> like, listen. Luckily, no police needed to be involved. Tyree met up with the recipient two times over the course of a few days, and it was a success. And sure enough, she's pregnant, and her daughter is two years old. Since that day, Tyree's gotten a lot more experience donating all over the place. I've traveled to Boston. I've traveled to Alaska, Washington, uh, Salt Lake City, St. Louis, Kansas City, California several times, L.A., San Diego, Vegas several times, Mexico, Texas many times over, Alabama. Like, literally, I've been across the map. Just like it was important for Ajami to vet her donors, Tyree is selective about where he goes and who he donates to. Most people I've helped are very well-established people. Um, Been married for a couple of years, in a relationship for a couple of years, financially stable. Tyree can choose not only who he donates to, but how many children he has. And he's decided to cap it at 30. He's even set up a Facebook success group where he can keep tabs on the families he's helped. And those families can get in touch with each other. It's kind of like a virtual version of Adam Hooper's meetup in the park. As long as the parent has good intentions uh, for that child, the only thing you can do is hope and pray that the child will have the best life. But that's also a reason why I have the group. So I can somewhat monitor and make sure that these children are happy. That's one of the key things that I want. I never want a child to, to live in misery. Tyree chalks up his popularity to a few things. His success rate, positive word of mouth, and another need he's filling. In some groups, I'm the only African-American donor that's being tagged into posts for women who's asking for African-American donors. Tyree has been called, quote, the most in-demand Black donor in America. But 
others are starting to join him. There's a group called Black Sperm Donors, and Tyree says he's seen it blow up. Before I was like the like one of the only Black donors out here in Arizona, and now that there's another Black donor I heard, which is great because now I can get some time to myself. And uh, because I'm like I'm, I've been I've been sitting here pumping out loads left and right, and now I can like here, bro, take some of these people, help some of these people, and uh, so I can have some time to myself. Scroll through just about any of the Facebook donation sites, and you'll notice a pattern. The vast majority of posts seeking donations are from people of color, people who identify as LGBTQ, or both. The gap that sperm donation Facebook groups fill isn't just about economics or finding a known donor. These sites are places people left out by the traditional system turn to as an alternative. A lot of people that go to the sperm banks are prominently white people, but also we are a minority. We don't trust the system. The system has failed us many times over. This weariness of the medical system came up for Ajami too. She said she saw a lot of posts on Facebook from women who felt their OB was dismissive of the route they had chosen, that they felt pressured into fertility treatments they couldn't afford. So when she started exploring this option, she didn't tell her doctor. I didn't talk to anyone about it. I didn't talk to my primary care about it. I was like, I'm gonna try it my way. And then once I get pregnant, then I'll get an OB. Coming up, Online sperm donations, cautionary tale, or a learning opportunity? We would strongly advise people not to use Facebook sperm, Amazon sperm. It's definitely not in their best interest. A medical take after the break. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently, ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. If you were casting a movie about college dorm life, Dr. Michael Thomas would totally play the lovable younger brother type. Everyone would come to my room and talk about their boyfriend issues and come to my room and talk about guys they wanted to to go out with. Female classmates would flock to him to talk about their problems, friend troubles, all kinds of things. 
including their menstrual cycles for some odd reason. So because of that, I became the guy that ended up having these incredible relationships with a lot of the particularly female young ladies in our dorm. And so it made sense for me to go into obstetrics and gynecology. Dr. Thomas checked off all the boxes. He was whip-smart, empathetic, and had a special knack for talking with women. But there was this hurdle. I will tell you, in Chicago, there were only, when I was a medical student, there were only two African-American men in the OBGYN residencies in the whole city. When Dr. Thomas started his career in the 80s, there weren't a lot of black men in OBGYN. I don't know. I don't know if there, you could say a fear. I just think that there were people who didn't think that patients wanted black men taking care of their uh, pelvic parts, to be honest with you. Today, Dr. Thomas is chief of the Division of Endocrinology and Infertility at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He's also the president-elect of the ASRM, so he's kind of a big deal in the fertility industry. And throughout his career, he's seen race influence all sides of fertility medicine, starting with referrals. There have been a number of studies to show that there are some physicians who tell their African-American patients to keep trying because, you know, you're, you're black and all these other black people got babies. You'll get a baby soon. Don't worry about it. Women of color are more likely to have fertility problems than white women, but they're less likely to receive treatment. When they do see a doctor, outcomes are worse, especially for black women. And if these patients need help conceiving, they have fewer options. The sperm banks uh, do not have a lot of African-American or uh, Hispanic donors. There are dozens of sperm banks in the U.S. As you've heard in previous episodes, there's no national tracking system in place in the baby business, so there isn't any data on the total number of Black donors. But as of this recording, California Cryobank, the largest sperm bank in the country, only had three Black donors available. This had me thinking back to Amber's parents. They had no problem finding a donor who looked like her dad. But people of color have to make all kinds of concessions. Dr. Thomas says recipients will often opt for donors with a darker complexion just to approximate something closer to their skin tone. This all adds up for people of color who are trying to start a family. So I've already lost that control over my ability to build the family that I want. This further loss of control, to me, would seem to be overwhelming. Jereen Morris is a clinical fellow in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of California, San Francisco. She says the unequal playing field runs even deeper than statistics show. During her residency, a supervising physician of hers told her to look up this guy named J. Marion Sims. And when she did... And I was floored with what I had then uncovered. It's 
So J. Marion Sims is known as the father of gynecology, and he essentially used slaves to perfect a lot of the surgical techniques that we utilize today. Um, what's heartbreaking is many of the women who he used to practice these techniques on, he did so without them receiving anesthesia because it was thought at the time Black people in general experience less pain than others. So these women were not anesthetized during the practicing of these techniques. The horrors that J. Marion Sims inflicted can feel like they're from another time, but the history and legacy reverberates today in hospitals and in med schools. Here's one example. Studies show that doctors attribute Black patients to feeling less pain than their white counterparts. and prescribe less pain medication and treatments. Our existence as providers and how the medical system, if you will, was designed, you know, a lot of it was designed not with an equitable lens. A lot of it was designed with the thought that non-Hispanic, white, race, or ethnicity, or if you will, was superior to those who weren't. All this trickles down to the patient and the trust those patients have in the medical system and their doctors. This could even help explain why Ajami was so reluctant to tell her doctor about her experience in the groups. You can perpetuate disparities even as a physician when the oath we took is to do no harm. You can do harm without trying to do harm. When Ajami and her wife abandoned the clinic and started looking for donors online, she chose not to tell a doctor until the time was right. And a little over a week after that last awkward self-insemination in her car, she was leaving work. Driving past, like, my favorite restaurant of all time. Like, I love the smell of it when I drive past. But this time... I literally gagged so hard I had to pull the car over. And I was like, all right, (laughs) something's definitely up now. Like, I don't throw up ever. I never, like, I don't understand what's happening. So I went home and I was like, hey, I think we should test. And the result she got was positive. And as soon as I pulled out the first response, it was two lines. And I literally fell to my knees and cried because I was amazed that it all had worked out on the first try. Ajami booked an appointment with an OB and was completely honest with the doctor. It's like, this is my wife. Um, we're married, and we conceived our kid AI. And she was like, tell me more. So Ajami did. And the doctor's response surprised her. I have a lot of, like, you know, LGBT couples that come in here. So I'm very open to, like, learning different methods outside of, you know, like, going through a fertility clinic. Part of why I wanted to talk with Dr. Thomas and Dr. Morris was to get a sense of what medical experts think of these rogue online communities. And it's complicated. Having a family should be just as much of a right as breathing air. There should not be the financial barrier that there is now. Dr. Thomas says insurers need to change practices and that fertility doctors should give away a portion of their work pro bono. But when it comes to the Facebook groups... People do whatever they do on their own. That's up to them. But we would strongly advise people not to use Facebook sperm 
Twitter sperm, uh, Instagram sperm, Amazon sperm. That's definitely not in their best interest. He said sperm banks are safer. Donor sperm is tested, quarantined for six months, and tested again to rule out the presence of infectious disease. If you use the Facebook groups, he says there's a real risk. But Dr. Morris is more like Ajmi's doctor. She says fertility medicine could learn some lessons from online communities. I'm completely supportive of it. What I challenge my colleagues and I challenge myself to do is identify these groups and be someone who filters through the machine to find the hidden gems and to give these hidden gems to our patients. Today, Ajami's son is two years old. He is honestly the coolest kid. He is hilarious. He loves to give fist pumps to people and high fives. He's just a great, rambunctious two-year-old. Ajami says she stays in touch with her donor every now and then. They agreed her son and her donor could meet once he turns 18. She wants to be open with him about his origins. She's still an admin in the groups. She answers other members' questions and says her inbox is always open. I would recommend it to anyone, honestly, especially if you're in the LGBT community. I'd recommend it. Financially, in this world currently that we live in, it's not accessible for everyone. So keeping that in mind, if it's something that you're open to, then go into it with an open mind. I'm not saying say yes, I'm not saying say no, but have an open mind. Look at the stories, the success stories, look at the overall picture of it. Tyree says sperm donation has fundamentally changed who he is. What more joy can you get than watching somebody have a family that you help create? You feel like you're God's finger. You're God's finger now or something like you're helping people that is in need and you're giving them the gift of life. At the same time, Tyree has kids of his own. When he started donating, he didn't consult with their mom, his ex. And his kids still have no idea they have nearly two dozen siblings. I'm not ready to let them know what's going on. Maybe when they're like 15, 16, um, when they have a little bit more understanding about life. Like right now, my 10-year-old is here and she don't know nothing what I do. And I want to keep it that way. Santa's still real. The reality of these groups is that they work well for some people, and for others, they don't. Success takes lots of work, and also lots of luck. These groups aren't just one thing. It's true, there are some bad actors on them, but they also help people who are often excluded from traditional fertility treatments. And they function as support groups. But for some people, finding support in fertility medicine is just half the battle. I think in, in the case of my family, there was definitely a lot of shame. What is my purpose as a husband, as, as a male? What is the point of me? You know, why am I here? This is not normal. Next week, on the season finale of Biohacked, a look at the way forward for the fertility industry and what it will take to break free 
of the family secrets created by the baby business. Biohacked Family Secrets is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 and Sony Music Entertainment. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. Our program is edited by Maureen McMurray. Our producers are Nick Mott, Jennifer Siegel, Shane McKeon, Krista Ripple, and Mara Silvers. Jenny Kim is our production manager, and Alicia Baitoup composed the theme. Our fact checkers are Will Tavlin and Ava Ahmed Behi. This episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Special thanks to Laura Mayer, Nuna Sharafadine, Amy Eason, Jennifer Womack, and Allison Sherry. Have a question or comment about this week's show? Send me a tweet at TJ Raphael or email us at biohacked at 3uncanny4.com. For 3uncanny4 and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm TJ Raphael.